This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to the latest episode of the AJ Bell Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth, and this week's show features some of the big things on investors' mind today. I'll give an update on what's happened in the banking sector and explain some of the big US tech stocks and how they've managed to bounce back after a miserable showing in 2022. Tom Selby is joining me in the hot seat this week. Hi there, Tom. Hi, Dan. Thanks very much for having me. Always a, always a pleasure. And as I'm here, let's bring back Pensions Corner with a question from a listener grappling with the fallout from the budget. Lots of people grappling with the implications of of Jerry Hunt's big statement, of course. And then later in the show, Laura Souter will be talking pocket money and children's savings with Go Henry's Louise Hill. Now, we're also near the end of the tax year, which means investors should act quickly if they want to make the most of any allowances. So we're going to see some big cuts to how much you can make in capital gains and dividends before paying tax. Now, those changes come into force on the 6th of April. So Laith Calaf from AJ Bell will be joining us to explain all these important changes. Yeah, packed and really interesting agenda there. But let's kick off the show with a look at what's happened on the market. So, Dan, is the banking crisis still causing share prices to plummet or have things calmed down a little bit? Well, I, I am quite pleased to say as we are recording this, it all looks a lot calmer. So we had Deutsche Bank shares were falling last week. Um, people were worried about the cost of insuring the company's bonds against the risk of default. And of course, that spread and we saw other banking shares slump. But um, you know, as we went into the start of this week, First Systems Bank said it would acquire the deposits and loans of Silicon Valley Bank. So I think that that sort of sent the signal that you know, perhaps all, all the sort of the, the sort of the most fragile looking banks were now being dealt with. Uh, we certainly saw bank shares on the market start to stabilize. But interestingly, you know, I was looking at names like Lloyd's and Barclays in the US market. Now, they haven't bounced back after losing about 10% in the last week or so, but they're not falling any further. So to me, that sort of suggests that you know investors aren't panicking anymore, but equally they're not quite ready to sort of go dip their toe back in that sector, even though the things are obviously looking a lot cheaper than they were before. But really, I think what's interesting against this sort of idea of um, volatility that we've seen with the banking sector is that all all this time that US tech shares have continued to push higher. And that's partially to do with a change in interest rate expectations as a result of this banking crisis. So if you look at the, the NASDAQ index, uh, which is kind of representing the big tech names, that's up 18% year to date. Names like NVIDIA and Meta are up 75% so far this year. Um, you know, even names like AMD are up uh, and, and Tesla are up 50%. So these, these are very large gains. I think if you, if you take a step back, you think last year, very bad for sort of tech stocks in general. Um, these companies are experiencing a big jump in costs. Um, they also had um, the downside of interest rate rises that was hurting the calculations when you, you try and sort of work out what's the present value of future cash flow. So um, essentially, investors were sort of less willing to pay high multiples of earnings to own these types of shares. They also had a strong US dollar was working against companies that earned a lot in, in sort of other currencies. 
This year, we've seen quite a lot of job cuts announced. So essentially, investors love it when companies say we're going to get rid of staff because um, it kind of means that you know, the cost base is, is being trimmed. Um, hopefully, that will translate into some bigger profits. We also might be at or near the end of this interest rate rise cycle. So I think investors are sort of starting to, to, to be happy to look for bargains again. Well, not some bargains because tech stuff is never really cheap, but they're, they're more willing to own these types of stocks, which were very much out of favor last year. And the Federal Reserve has changed its statement on the rates outlook from saying um, the ongoing rate increases to now saying that some additional firming may be appropriate. So I think investors are sort of taking that to mean that, you know, maybe we'll see one, two more rises, but actually we might see a, a potential rate cut by the end of the year. And if you go back two, three weeks, that certainly wasn't being talked about at all. Interesting stuff, Dan. Now, closer to home, we've just had the latest full year results from Next, actually, a company I spent a few weeks working for in my youth. Pre-tax profit grew by 5% to £712 million, but the share price has tanked. Now, that seems counterintuitive to me. So can you just explain exactly what's happened? Yeah, well, when, you know, when investors look at company results, the first thing they do is go straight to the outlook statement because share prices are driven by anticipation about what might happen in the future rather than historical information, which is essentially what the results are. They're just reporting what the company's already done. So whilst trading has been fairly resilient, investors didn't like sort of the gloomy outlook from the company. Next was kind of just saying, you know, we're really unsure about what's going to happen for the rest of the year. Um, now, some of the inflationary pressures that we've had as a business are perhaps easing. So that should translate into sort of much sort of smaller increases in, in sort of the cost of clothes and perhaps some people are expecting. But, you know, the other day we had some food price inflation figures and they were really high. And it kind of just, you know, you have to take, just look at it thinking, well, if more of your take home pay is being gobbled up by groceries, so you look at what's left, and so there's just a smaller amount of money there. So, so really, it's all about making decisions on how you spend that smaller amount of pot that's left after you've been paid. Now, economic uncertainty is still there, and that should suggest that people are worried, uh, certainly about job security. So, so maybe they don't want to use credit cards or loans to pay for stuff. So lots of people are still watching their spending. And it didn't help that, Next also came out and said, uh, you know, pointing out the growth in the business actually slowed in the last eight years. Um, and then, of course, that's led to some analysts sort of saying, you know, ooh, you know that's, a, that's a fair point. But actually, if you look at what it's trying to do, we're not sure that its growth prospects are actually very good in the future either. So, I mean, I mean, personally, if I go to a next door, I rarely walk out having bought something. Now, mm. Tom, before you accuse me of shoplifting, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not that I'm taking clothes. It's just basically, I don't, I don't know. I, I just don't really like its clothes in general. I find them quite bland. But I mean, obviously, if you, you, you say that you've worked there um, when you were younger, Tom, are you, are you a sort of a next fanatic? Uh, I wouldn't put myself down as a fanatic. No, I used to, in my brief um, tenure and certainly not illustrious tenure um, working, working at Next Star, I received a staff discount, which always helped in terms of making a decision whether you're going to get something from there or whether you weren't. Um, I've, I've been to Next a few times for, for boxer shorts and things like that and socks, but that 
that tends to be the limit of my next shopping. I, I wonder if perhaps they get slightly caught in between those really cheap retailers for other types of clothes where people are really looking to save money and then the people who are looking to treat themselves and splash out a bit they might be willing to go for something a little bit more expensive and as you say next is kind of in the middle decent quality but a bit bland and perhaps that's just not quite where where shoppers preferences might be yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's got this brilliant reputation of, if you read the company accounts, it's always incredibly clear. You know exactly what's going on with the business. But um, strategically, in recent years, they've been you know selling more third-party brands. I mean, their argument is, if you go to the next website, um, if you, by providing a greater choice, you're more likely to buy something through its platform. So um, it's now doing deals where it, it's sort of handling the logistics of, um, sending out these third-party products as well. So, um, you know, the, the company you know, is always trying to experiment and do things. But um, I don't know. So uh, there's a comment from Shaw Capital that sort of said that, um, you know, profits are going to decline if you just look at the, what, what's happening at the moment. And, you know, even though this business is focused on online growth, cutting its costs, investing in, in sort of tech and infrastructure, Shaw Capital says it's just not confident these initiatives will deliver growth for shareholders and of course that comes back down to the, you know, the fundamentals when you when you buy a share in a business the share price will be driven by earnings growth and if this sort of proposition from next is looking a lot more muted in terms of what it might achieve in the future you're sort of wondering whether you know will, will investors still be that interested in owning these this stock and of course this negative share price reaction to these later sets of figures would suggest that there's people sort of going, hmm, okay, maybe, you know, it used to be the sort of the king of retail. Does that really stand today? So, um, you know, something, something to think about. So, um, but let's, let's move on to pensions. So obviously Tom is here, our pensions expert. Um, and so that's a really good opportunity to sort of look at some of the questions that we've been, we've been sent in. So we, this week we've got Meredith from, Somerset is asking about some things from that were announced in, in the budget the other day. So Meredith was sort of raising the point about the lifetime allowance being scrapped and, and just sort of saying, you know, is, is that a, as, a, as a giveaway to the wealthy? But, but why would anyone want to pay in more than the 1,000, the sort of the, the million pound and a bit that lifetime allowance is currently at if they can't build up more? tax-free cash. She's asking, what is she missing here, Tom? Yeah, thanks, Dan. So we've had loads of questions in um, about the budget, um, and that's understandable. And so I'll, I'll try my best to, to cover those questions off in, in the coming weeks, whether it's on the podcast or in Shares Magazine or other articles. But focusing in on the, on the question from Meredith, let's first set out the, the key things that are being covered here. So the, the lifetime allowance, that's the the figure that as things stand on the 29th of March 2023, to be clear, governs how much you can build up in your retirement pot over your lifetime without incurring a lifetime allowance tax charge. And as you say, and as Meredith set out in her question, that's set at just over a million quid at the moment. Now, as of today, the lifetime allowance also determines how much tax-free cash you can take. So in 2022-23, that maximum tax-free cash is 25% of just over a million pounds. So that's £268,000, just over £268,000 altogether. Now, there are 
people with what's called protections who might have higher lifetime allowances and higher tax-free cash entitlement as a result of something that we talked about in the post-budget episode of the podcast and also something that we've written about. But for the purpose of this quiz question, we don't need to worry about that. And we're not going to go into those details. So from the 6th of April 2023, so in just over a week's time from now, the, the lifetime allowance charge will be abolished. But the minimum tax-free, the maximum tax-free cash that you can build up will remain at its current level, so just over £268,000. And that's actually a way that the Treasury will likely, over time, rein in a bit of the money that it's spent on abolishing the lifetime allowance charge, because that tax-free cash entitlement is going to stay the same as it is, rather than potentially in the future going up with inflation. Now, that means that contributions above just over a million pounds, um, won't generate any extra tax-free cash, as Meredith says in her question. So there's slightly less incentive available for those contributions to, to pay into a pension. But there are still very good reasons that you might want to do that. So firstly, your contributions to a pension above that amount that generates extra tax-free cash entitlements or above just, just over a million pounds, will still benefit from the upfront boost of tax relief at your marginal rate. But now there'll be no lifetime allowance tax charge to worry about when you come to crystallise that money. So crystallising, that usually means things like entering drawdown, uh, taking your tax-free cash, although that won't be possible if you're going above your tax-free cash entitlement and buying an annuity, things like that. Secondly, if you're employed, and this is really important, your contributions will benefit from an employer match. So you'll get both the bonus of tax relief and you'll get an employer matching contribution up to the automatic enrollment minimum. So under automatic enrollment rules, employers have to pay in at least 3% of your qualifying earnings into your pension scheme. You pay in 4% and 1% comes from tax relief. Now that's just the minimum. Actually, lots of employers pay in more than that. And so if you're employed and benefit benefiting from those contributions, then clearly there's a huge value in saving into a pension, whether it's below the below the current lifetime allowance or above that level. And even though you're not generating tax-free cash, you're still getting all that free money going into your pension, which of course can grow tax-free within your pension as well. Finally, the, the tax treatment on death of pensions is very generous and that's something that's been written and talked about a lot in the the post-budget coverage so you can pass on funds tax-free held within a pension if you die before age 75 to your nominated beneficiary or beneficiaries and that can be anybody you like and if you die after the age of 75 then it will be taxed in the same way as income when your beneficiary or beneficiaries come to make a withdrawal. So this this really generous IHT, the, the fact that pensions are free from IHT in most cases and you can actually pass them on potentially tax-free to your beneficiaries means that pensions, it often makes sense to spend your pension pot last of all your assets because you don't want to include it in your estate for IHT purposes and that won't be an issue that you need to think about with your pension. And now you won't need to worry about paying a lifetime allowance tax charge either if you die before age 75. So as Meredith says, she's right that the freezing of 
the tax-free cash entitlement at just over 268 grand is a minor sting in the tail of the budget changes. And it does affect the incentives to save where you're not generating extra tax-free cash entitlement. But there are still, as I hopefully have set out there, plenty of reasons for people to pay into a pension, whether you're a smaller saver with a smaller pot or someone with a larger pot. And that's going to be even more so the case from 6th of April onwards. Thanks, Tom. So from older people to younger ones, let's move on to the challenge of getting individuals to develop good money management habits from an early age. After Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said he wanted everyone to study maths up to age 18, there's been a lot of focus on financial literacy amongst young people, particularly teaching practical maths to younger generations. Laura Souter recently caught up with Louise Hill, co-founder of children's debit card and financial literacy app GoHenry, to talk about what kind of maths youngsters should be taught and to give us a peek into the spending habits of the nation's children. Let's hear what Louise had to say. So first, can you tell us what GoHenry does for those who aren't aware or who haven't used it before? Yes, of course. GoHenry is a prepaid debit card and financial education app. Um, It's designed for children aged 6 to 18, and we have a very simple mission to make every kid smart with money. We launched in 2012, and we provide tools to help kids learn about money by earning, saving, spending responsibly, giving, and more, all with parental oversight. And to give you an idea of size, we now have well over 2 million customers across the UK, the US, and more recently, Europe. Uh, with our acquisition of the French fintech, PixPay. And so you think that children should be taught more about money from an earlier age. How do you think that that can fit in with their existing lessons? Obviously, there's lots of demands on children these days, lots of different areas they need to learn about. So how do you think that can fit in? Well, GoHenry's pushing for financial education to be made a standalone subject from primary school level and made compulsory in all schools, not just those that have to follow the state curriculum. And that's really because there's only 20% of state schools left who actually are required to follow the curriculum. It's because all, all UK children from primary school age deserve a financial education. They need the skills and knowledge to manage their money effectively in adulthood. And regardless of that, is regardless of their background. Um, You know, it really is a fantastic way, a fantastic tool for levelling up and and driving equality. And you you said specifically about how does that fit in? Um, Well, I think one of the problems um, is that so far, it is compulsory in the curriculum in secondary schools in the UK. um, But when we talk to teachers and find out what is stopping them or what the barriers are to them delivering effective financial education, what they tell us is the overriding reason is they simply don't have time. And then the second reason is a lot of them do not feel confident to deliver those skills. And and so really fitting it into existing lessons, it, it has to be recognised as the fundamental life skill that it is and um, and space found for it. But I think it's really important that we make clear, that I make clear, that we don't think it's the responsibility, the sole responsibility of schools. 
um, it, it isn't only government, only schools that have to drive this change. It needs a collaboration between schools, teachers, parents and carers, families, but also businesses, universities and, and charities, the third sector. Because I think the if the onus is put on parents solely to um, provide that education, you end up with a kind of generational thing where if parents don't know about some of the basics of personal finance, which which lots of adults don't, um, they then can't pass that knowledge on to their children and you end up with that continuing down the generations. So I guess, is that why part of the reason why you think it needs to be a collaboration between lots of different um, groups and, and people? I think so. Um, I mean, the, the government's um, action in the past has been to make it compulsory on the curriculum in secondary schools. And that was put in place several years ago now. It, it's probably five, six years ago. But when you actually look at which schools are delivering it and how they're delivering it, it's, it's very often um, subsumed within the PSHE um, uh, lessons that children have. It's not delivered by specialised teachers. Um, it the the coverage is is really patchy. So there are of course some schools that absolutely excel, and there are others who are not doing it at all. And we know also from talking to parents. I mean, one of the things we released, um, gosh, probably two years ago now, is money missions, which are in app gamified money lessons um, that talk to children in a way that they used the way that they're used to learning today and that teach them skills around money. And what's been really interesting is when we released that within the Go Henry app, we started straight away to get feedback from parents to say, well this is fantastic and my child's working through the the age and stage appropriate uh, money lessons. But some of the things I don't know. And I've now got, you know, parents saying I've now got my 13 year old coming to me and telling telling me about pensions or compound interest, you know, how their savings grow. And I've never understood that before. And and they're actually asking us for parent um, lessons, uh, which is really interesting. So, yes, it's the reason that we're calling for this is to try and break the cycle. There is a huge amount of money spent on curing people who get into financial problems so debt charities and um uh, and that sort of thing but if we can start at the beginning and really give a good financial education so to every child in the uk through primary school then we're stopping the problem before it starts and we're addressing all of the imbalances between parents who are confident parents who are not schools that are currently able to deliver it, schools that are not. We're addressing that at the beginning and, and um, creating a great platform to improve society fundamentally. And if we think about kind of the maths lessons we learn at school, we learn things like Pythagoras theorem, but we don't learn how to apply for a mortgage or how to fill out a tax return. So what kind of things do you think children at different ages should be learning in terms of uh, personal finance and how practical should it go? For me personally, it has to be practical. Um, I, I've used this example many times in the past, but uh, and I've likened money skills to learning to swim. You, you know, you would never throw your child in the deep end of a swimming pool and expect them to swim. 
um, nor would you teach them the theory and then expect them to be able to swim. So I think money management is, is very much like that and money skills very much like that. It's no good just teaching the theory. Pra there needs to be practical experience as well. And um, it needs to be done with aids. You know, when you learn to swim, you might have one of those, are they called woggles, the, the great big um, floaty tubes or um, armbands or something like that to help you. Well, with Go Henry, we're giving parents a tool that they can use to teach their kids. Um, there's a debit card that the child can use, but the parent can put limits on it. The parent can see everything that's happening, particularly when they're younger. And with those tools, the child learns practically to use money in the real world in the way that they need to be able to use it as they grow into adulthood. And I think also... Um, it's worth saying, you know, money management, it isn't the role of one person. Um, as I've said earlier, we all need to work together to do that so that we can give those practical skills and the theory behind it. And in the cost of living crisis, um, lots of money stuff has become kind of much more mainstream, much more talked about more on the front pages, things like, you know, inflation, interest rates. There's a lot more talk about that. Has it kind of changed what children should be taught? Has it changed your guys' approach to um, some of the lessons that you think children should have? I don't think it's changed what should be taught. I think it's changed the focus of what families are talking about and how they're speaking about money inside the family. Um, we, we did some research at the end of 2022 when, when the phrase cost of living crisis started to appear uh, across all of the press and in, in all of our mouths um, and saw that UK kids were deeply concerned about the cost of living crisis and, and rising inflation and the impact on their parents. Um, you know, if I, if, if I give you a couple of stats from that research, 71% uh, of children were worried about the cost of living crisis because they'd heard it talked about at home. And specifically, 73% were worried about the cost of electricity. Again, because they'd heard it, on, heard it in the press, they'd heard it talked about at home. And 40% of eight-year-olds, and it, and it was 33% of children overall, it was interesting, it was even more of eight-year-olds, said that they'd be very happy to go without new toys or other treats for a month to help their family afford essentials like food and electricity. And I think that just shows, you know, children today, they're being bombarded with information on all sides and they, they know what's going on. You can't shelter your child completely from hearing about things like worries about money and, and the cost of living. And so it's really important to talk to them about it in an age-appropriate way. And clearly that's going to be very different when you're having a conversation with a six-year-old to the conversation you have with a teenager. But fundamentally, the common theme has to be teaching the difference between needs and wants. You know, it, it might simply be um, explaining to a younger child why they can't have a certain treats like, um, like a favorite ice cream, for example. Um, you might need to say, well, you've already had one treat today or it's going to spoil your next meal or just giving them an alternative for something else. 
But for older children and teens, it's really important to make open conversations about money a normal part of family life and, and, you know, involving your children in the discussions. Over the over the last six months, I've been asked a lot for tips on how parents, you know, what things could parents discuss with their children about the cost of living crisis. And there are all kinds of examples. You know, it can be as simple as, well, we're going to cut back on takeaways on our Friday night takeaway. But instead, um, let's go to the supermarket and pick what toppings you want for a pizza and we'll make pizza at home. It could be if you go to the supermarket with your children, um, getting them to scout the shelves for you and look at the difference in price between the supermarket own brands and the higher price brands. All of those things are teaching them how to budget, teaching them to think about how to make positive decisions around money. Um, it's involving them, it's empowering them, it's making them feel that they have an element of control and are therefore not worried in the same way um, about money. One of the things that I think is um, trickier, particularly with younger kids today, is that we're increasingly in a kind of cashless society. And so if I think about when I learned about pocket money and saving, I had physical coins and put them in a piggy bank and, and that's how I saved up. And there was a kind of physical thing there that you could see. Um, obviously, your service is entirely digital um, and increasingly money is more digital. So... Um, how do you teach kids about the kind of meaning of money and saving up money when it's all this kind of virtual thing now rather than physical coins and notes? I think that's absolutely critical. I mean, yes, when, when I grew up and my dad used to give me pocket money on a Saturday, when, when I'd spent it, it was gone. You know, when, when my purse was empty, there was no more. Um, and that's um, really one of the fundamental reasons um, we founded Go Henry. It was, it was me trying to figure out how did I teach my kids that every time they clicked download on iTunes, that that was spending money. Um, and it, one of the things we know, uh, Go Henry customers, young people, children, they are Gen Z and Gen Alpha. And Gen Z is obviously often being characterized as the first digital natives well one thing we know at go henry is they are also the first cashless natives um we know that uh, uh looking at our data and our, our youth economy report we release every year um only 14 percent of the money that comes into children and just to give you an idea of size that was 148 million pounds last year that came to go henry kids um only 14 percent of that was taken out as cash was spent as cash. They prefer to use digital money. And so, yes, it is very, very important that they learn that every time they click that button, they shop online or they buy something on their Xbox or, or PlayStation, that that is spending money. And the way we've done that at Go Henry is every time they do that, they get a little ping on their phone that says, you've just spent whatever it is, £2.99 at, at Boohoo. Um, you now have £3.47 left or whatever the number is, or you just tried to spend £2.99 at Boohoo. Um, that's more than you've got 
uh, available or that's more than your weekly spend limit. So it, it's it's a reaction to every decision that they take so that they are informed and they do understand that, that when it's gone, it's gone. And then equally, the, the earning tools, so the fact that parents can set up tasks and chores for children um, to earn their pocket money, it's teaching them gently that, you know, once their pot is empty, uh, maybe they need to go and do their chores or maybe they need to uh, try something else or just wait for next week. Um, it's all trying to teach those core life skills um, to make them uh, more confident and more effective with money. And so you guys obviously have a unique insight into what the nation's children are spending their pocket money and birthday money on. <laughs> is it? I would assume a lot of it is digital downloads of games or apps or, you know, in-game purchases. Is, does that make up a large amount of it? It does. But um, I'm thinking back to our, our, not, our, not last year's youth economy report, but the one before, where I think one of the phrases we used was that uh, teenage girls were keeping the high street afloat. So, no, it isn't mm. digital only. Um, there's a, there's a, a really, there is a lot of um, digital downloads and gaming, uh, as you would expect. It is more um, weighted towards boys. Um, but uh, girls in particular use money on, on kind of social purposes, so out with their friends on the high street, having a coffee, those sort of things. I, I've, I've got some, you know, I can give you some examples. What was interesting looking at 2022 versus 2021, um, I think really demonstrating the the pressure of cost of living crisis starting to to come into play shows that children spent less on non-essential items so toys in 2022 this is the first half of 2022 were 32% down fashion was 14% down and gaming was 11% down but interestingly um the concept of sustainable uh living was increasing so to give you an example, the average spend on Depop rose by 114%. Wow. Despite the fact that, as I've just said, fashion overall went down 14%. So um, some really, it is, we do have fantastic data and it's really interesting to see the shifts in spend behaviour and how they kind of echo the thing, the themes that are uh, surfacing in society, really. The, these kids are leading the way. Um, so, yeah, fascinating. Um, one hugely uh, reassuring stat is uh, through the app, children can donate to charity. And in the UK, we, we partner with the NSPCC um, and children can make micro donations, you know, any, anything from two pence to um, the charity. But overall, donations to charity increased by an incredible 256% in 2022. And the total, oh, wow. amount, total amount donated by Go Henry Kids to charity was uh, in the first half, again, of 20, only the first half of the year in 2022, was £435,000. That's amazing. That's a heartwarming note to finish on, I think. 
it is. <laughs> thanks a lot for um, thanks a lot for joining us today. Really interesting. Thank you. That was Laura Souter talking to Louise Hill from Go Henry. Now. The end of the tax year is only days away, very exciting, which means a lot of investors are scrambling to top up their ICES. AJ Bell's Leif Kalaf joins us to talk about why investors need to think hard about their financial circumstances, as there are a raft of tax changes happening on 6th of April, aren't there always? So Leif, give us an overview of what's changing and how this is going to affect savers and investors. Yeah, hello everyone. Um, I think there's probably four major major te- tax changes that I think are probably most relevant to to savers and investors that are coming in from from sixth of April, so um, little uh, a little uh, over a week away at the moment. So the first is the freezing of the income tax threshold, the personal allowance frozen at twelve thousand five hundred seventy. And the higher rate tax band frozen at £50,270. So this is the second year that those uh, allowances have actually and threshold have actually been frozen. Uh, so they've now been the same as, uh, since 2021. And they're going to be frozen under current plans uh, for at least another five years until April 2028. Uh, and that has a big effect on, on the, the, ta- the tax take, how much tax people pay because of this thing called fiscal drag. Um, if the allowances stay where they are, but your earnings go up, which for most people, uh, that is what happens, uh, then actually you end up paying more tax. So it's not just about if you cross over the boundaries, you end up paying more tax, which obviously you do. Everyone pretty much ends up paying more tax because those boundaries stay static rather than rising. Normally, you'd expect them to rise with inflation, which would offer you some, some at least some protection uh, against income tax. So that's the first thing. The second thing that's happening uh, is that the uh, the threshold for the top rate of income tax um, is is falling. So that's the forty five percent rate. Currently, you have to earn over one hundred fifty thousand pounds in order. Uh, to pay that, that is now dropping to £125,140. So quite a significant uh, drop there. Obviously means we're going to get more top rate taxpayers. Um, so probably also worth pointing out that there is, as well as a 45% tax rate, there is actually a 60% tax rate, which occurs for people earning between 100000 and £125,140, which happens because those are people paying 40% tax and they also get their personal allowance whipped away from them at a rate of um, uh, uh, £1 for every £2 above that income, uh, that, that uh, £100,000 uh, threshold that they sit. So so that means that the five standard tax bands are now on earned income. You pay nothing up to £12,570. You pay 20% between £12,570 and £50,000. £270. You pay 40% between £50,270 and £100,000. Then you've got that nasty 60% uh, bracket between £100,000 and £125,140. And then you pay 45% above that. I don't make the rules. I don't I don't work. I just work here. So, you know, any any letters of complaint, please send them into the Treasury, not into here. So uh, that's the kind of income tax side of things. The third thing that's changing is that is the dividend allowance is being cut. Uh, so currently you can see, receive £2,000 of dividends each year without paying tax. That's been cut to £1,000 uh, from the 6th of April. 
and £500 from, from the following April. So that's a pretty big um, a cut, especially when you think about it in conjunction with frozen tax thresholds as well, because your tax ban determines how much tax, determines how much tax you pay on your dividends. So basic rate taxpayers on dividends pay 8.75%, higher rate taxpayers pay 33.75%, and top rate taxpayers pay 39.35%. So some more tax coming down the road there as well. And finally, the capital gains tax allowance is being cut as well. So at the moment, you can currently make £12,300 worth of gains uh, each each year. Uh, From April, that's being cut to £6,000. And then from the following April, it's being cut to £3,000. You may be detecting a pattern here. So again, there are pretty swinging uh, cuts coming through. Again, if you you pay um, capital gains tax dependent on what, what rate of tax you pay, basic rate taxpayers pay 10% capital gains tax. And uh, a higher rate and additional rate taxpayers pay 20% capital gains tax. And you also get an 8% surcharge on property transactions as well. Now, I think it's probably also worth pointing out um, that you do have to crystallize gains in order to be liable to CGT. So it's not just you know, gains in your portfolio that you haven't crystallized. So you have to in cash. You do have some control um, over the timing um, of those of those gains being harvested, but clearly a very large reduction in, in, in a CGT allowance also heading down the tracks. So, so obviously, Leif, that's quite a lot for our listeners to take in. But I think the, the key, key message here is that um, you know, if there is something that someone can do to protect themselves from this sort of rising tax tide, they should do it. So, I mean, have you got any sort of solutions for listeners who, who perhaps are sort of worried about these changes that are about to happen? Yeah, I think um, I think there are there are definitely things that people can do. I mean, you, you perhaps can't offset all the extra tax that you're going to be paying um, in the coming years, but there are some steps that you can take. Probably uh, first and foremost, we are heading towards the end of the tax year. Um, which means that it's also ISA season. It's the time when people are kind of um, sh- um, shuffling around their papers and rushing to do their ISA at the last minute because for whatever reason, that's what everyone does. Um, and that's actually a really good way, uh, of course, to, um, uh, uh, to to shelter yourself from tax. I'm sh- sure for, for many listeners of this pod, we're probably preaching to the converted already. But your ISA, investments in your ISA are basically free from capital gains tax and from dividend tax. And they don't count towards the allowances that that I've just discussed. Um, so you have you have an annual ISA um, contribution limit, which is twenty thousand um, pounds. If you're doing it in this tax year, that needs to be made by the fifth of April, and then from sixth of April, uh, you've got another twenty thousand pounds you can you can put into an ISA. So um, you know that is a um, you know a, a very obvious thing that people can do to save tax. Uh, the second, the second thing that you can do, and this is Tom's turf here, is is contribute to a pension. Um, so um, you get tax relief on a pension uh, contribution in line with uh, the rate of, of tax that you pay. So potentially that's twenty percent, forty percent, or forty five percent. Actually, if you're in that hundred thousand to one hundred twenty five thousand ish bracket, it's actually sixty percent um, that you're getting on tax relief um, it, within within those boundaries. Um, so you, your, your pension is another thing that you can use. You do have sort of restrictions on when you can draw your pension at 57 and you do have um, tax to pay. You pay income tax on your pension when you draw it, but you do get 25% as a lump sum when you draw it. And also the other thing is most for most people, you pay lower tax in retirement than you do when you're working because your income tends to drop down uh, as well. So again, another good idea to look at is, is pensions. So after those two, those two are your absolute staples, I would say. 
you can, in terms of like tax wrappers, you can then look at uh, VCTs and EISs. They have quite generous tax reliefs uh, as well. Uh, so you might want to consider those. And, and the reason I say you might want to consider them is, is really because they are quite risky. And that's because they invest in very early stage companies. Um, those obviously have a great deal of risk associated with them. Um, you know, probably particularly at the moment with a lot of the things we've been seeing in, in a VC world that's kind of, you know, set off, um, you know, problems in the banking sector. Um, so they're also not very, not very liquid. So, you know, definitely look at pensions and ISAs first. But if you're paying a lot of tax, have a lot of money to invest and don't mind taking quite a lot of risk, you might also consider VCTs and EISs. Uh, another thing you can do is to use your spouse. That's because each of you have a dividend allowance and a capital gains tax allowance. So where possible, it makes sense to spread your assets between you. Actually, if you move assets between you, then that doesn't incur any capital gains tax charge. So it's something that you can do um, efficiently. And the other thing that you can do is, is use your, your capital gains tax allowance by, by selling investments. So at the moment in this tax year, you have an allowance of £12,300, uh, which, which you, can, uh, you can put towards gains. Um, in this year. But I'd probably say not in, in this scenario, you don't let the, the kind of tax tail wag the investment dog. If you're perfectly happy with your investments, I wouldn't just go around selling them just to to to, to encash tax because then you've kind of got, got, got to reinvest them somewhere else. So I think if you're, you're thinking of getting rid of investments anyway, probably do it before the end of the tax year to make the most of that, that allowance because it's being cut um, um, uh, from the 6th of April. Um, but but don't just simply go kind of um, crazy, kind of in, in cashing your, your you know your portfolio up to twelve thousand three hundred to do it. I don't think that makes a huge amount of set of sense. Uh, and also, don't forget that you cannot set losses from unsuccessful investments against your capital gains um, as 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 well. Um, so we've actually at, at AJ Bell we've seen quite a lot of activity in terms of what's called a bed and ISA this year, uh, which is where people sell their existing investments. And they use the proceeds, then buy buy back within an ISA. And uh, we, we suspect that the reason that they're doing that is that, A, they want an ISA, but B, they're also using a bit of that um, uh, that kind of CGT allowance as well. So that's probably a broad overview uh, of the options available to you. Like, like I say, probably your first port of call is, is your ISA and your pension. And also the other things, you know, apart from VCs, are a bit of more sensible tax planning as well. Fantastic. Thanks a lot, Leith. That's a really useful run through, I think, of the main tax changes and the things people can do to shelter their money from HMRC. And I think I think for me, the main takeaway there will be don't, don't let the tax tail wag the, the investment dog. I think that's a really good nugget of information that people can, can take away and use. Now, that's all we've got time for this week. Don't miss next week's podcast where Laura will be talking to Jasmine Yeo from Ruffer. Until then, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.